All right, everybody say hi to my friend, Carrie. Hello, everyone. This is my friend, Carrie, and uh, Carrie is up here to help me tell a story this morning. Um, as you know, we have been in our series, and we're answering one question. What is that question? That's right. Good job. Do I trust God? Did you notice how much they were awake? Yes. That, like, first service, there was, like, one person that was like, yeah, I trust God. <laughs> But second service, all of you got it. Like, that's great. Way to go. You got some coffee in you. You're good. Well, at the end here, you know that our series, just kind of winding this series down, we're sharing stories of trust from God's Word. So um, we're, we're looking at those cool stories in God's Word of people trusting in God and how we can learn lessons from them and how we trust God today. But through, the, through that, we also wanted some modern-day stories of people that have learn to trust in the Lord through some of their life and some of their circumstances and what they've been going through. And so we've asked a couple people to do that. So over the next couple of weeks, you'll see some individuals up, up front with us during our messages, sharing a story of how they learned to trust in the Lord. And then as we head towards Thanksgiving, you know that every year we have our own service where anyone gets to share a story and any of us will get to short, share a story of trust this year. So I'm looking forward to that. So this is my friend, Kerry Pease, and he's doing a pretty good job of trusting the Lord in the midst of some challenging things that he's had going on in his life. And so I'm going to let him tell you his story. Pastor Mark, thank you for the yep. opportunity. Um, so this is what you do for a living, the lights, the pressure, <laughs> <laughs> very challenging. Um, just to preface this little talk we're having, um, first, have we rehearsed it? No. No. We, we had, I guess we had to first go around the first service, and, it, and I didn't fall flat on my face. No, it was good. Um, but am I a public speaker? Not, you are Not today. really. Rhetorical <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> and this is the first day that uh, I have ever spoke in church. Uh, up in front of everybody, so it's a, it's a very different feeling. And uh, so if I'm a little nervous, please forgive me. Uh, some of you may know me um, by being the usher the third Sunday of the month, um, greeting folks as they come in. Uh, on occasion, I am gone to a senior baseball or softball tournament. That's one of the quirky things I do. Uh, and then usually Buck Rogers, super, super usher Buck Rogers fills in for me, which I, uh, he's not here right now, but a, a shout out to him. I'm very thankful of how he can switch it up so much. That's great. Um, the other thing, if you come to the first service, is you might see in row five, row five, seats one and two. Typically, that's where my wife, Cheryl, and I sit. We're on the right side as you come in, not to be confused with the, right, the far right or the left, certainly not the left. That sounds like a political commercial there, doesn't it? I've seen too many of those, I guess, lately. Um, but to the point of why I'm up here is that some of you may know me from working at Eastern Washington University. Yes. Yes, I worked there for just about 38 years. And um, although, although I should interject and say this, uh, Pastor Mark's got his fancy uh, tablet there to work from. I was gonna go without notes, folks. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. 
I had to write some things down. I'm hoping not to refer to them, but uh, there might be times when I just got to pause and kind of go to my notes to make sure I get this, get this as, as, as good as I, I, I can for you. Um, so talking about my job at Eastern Washington University, I worked in the sports and recreation department. Now two key words there, sports and recreation. How can that not be a great job? Yeah. I loved it. Uh, on my way to what I thought probably was going to be a cap of 40 years and get the gold watch and the pat on the back as you head out the door, which there are no gold watches handed out, by the way. <laughs> um, something uh, devastating, heartbreaking happened. Um, my position was eliminated. Truthfully, it got pretty cutthroat up there, and, uh, and I could kind of see it coming, but still the shock when they say, you've got 30 days. I'm getting emotional again, and it's been, That's okay. folks, it's been two years since this has happened, so still working through that and maybe that's uh, why god wanted me up here yeah so uh through that time there have been challenges as you might imagine because i didn't go out on my terms uh i chose to retire um kind of forced into retirement so how bad can it be? I'm in retirement. What am I whining about? Well, I liken it to, um, you know, in a way, loving, loving someone. I loved working for the university. And that someone didn't love me back all of a sudden. I, um, I was hurt, obviously. And yes, you can see I'm still going through it sometimes. Um, but as far as the uh, occasional thoughts of chokeholds and various weapons, um, <laughs> those, those are just thoughts that have, have gone by the wayside that I've put away. Um, but yeah, but anyways, so yeah. you still got, you got another question. Yeah, Carrie, through those moments when you were struggling at the beginning and even some you still have now, um, what, what were some of the ways that you just found yourself kind of trusting in the Lord? Well, we, we talk about this often in here, but sometimes it can, uh, distractions can get in the way, but a prayer life is key. A prayer life to uh, opening up to what the Holy Spirit will speak to you uh, is essential. And, um, and I found myself certainly having more time. And uh, my mornings dedicated more to a, a prayer life now. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing more dishes <laughs> and making the bed certainly much more than I... That I, that I would, and I find that my wife enjoys that if I'm, I'm helping out 
there. Um, and there, I, I didn't say this first service, but there are little quirky things that I've, that I've found that I appreciate more. And that is instead of rushing off to work in the morning, my taste buds. I thank the Lord for my taste buds quite often. Sounds kind of silly, but, but it happens because I enjoy um, having a breakfast and, and kind of mapping out what my day is going to hold. Um, to kind of sum it up, I can, I can tell you two stories that, that um, I, I felt the Holy Spirit speaking to me. And that's what's gone on. It's, this, is, this is two stories on one from two years ago, approximately, and one that just happened uh, last week. And in between, there's been many things where the Holy Spirit has revealed themselves to me and helped me remind myself that that was my job, but who I am is a child of God. Yeah. So, so more than two years ago, Pastor Mark asked me to lead a, uh, a prayer group up at Eastern. Yeah. Your first step of big trust, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, this was a big step of trust. And, and yes, that was challenging. Yeah, I didn't yeah. really want to do it, but, um, but the Holy Spirit again spoke to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he'd already spoken to me that you were the man for the job, so. Oh, is that right? Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, and, and, um, and it was great. Uh, meeting sometimes up in the press box at Roos Field. Um, the group was fairly large at times, and then sometimes there wouldn't be as many people, and I'd have to check myself because it's not about the numbers. Um, but we were praying for the university that actually canned me. <laughs> All right? Um, that's what, that's what, how it came to be. So with about 14 months to go, I think right around in there, um, that's when I was given my notice. And I was challenged uh, by Satan to, um, to just say, hey, you're mad at them? Walk away from it. And even people in the group thought, we're done. Even my own pastor said at one point um, after I'd been essentially let go, uh, he said, um, you don't have to keep doing this. Well, what, what he didn't know <laughs> was that the Holy Spirit had been speaking to me, and um, the word was finish, yeah. completed. That was very challenging. And uh, he knows the words that I said to him at the time that he now, because we've had first service, but this morning was kind of, hmm, I don't remember saying that, but yes, he did say, you can let it go, Carrie. And then I looked at him and I said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> <laughs> he took it pretty well, I think. It was funny. Yeah. So we continued that prayer group and I saw it through the 40 months of doing it. And the reason it was 40 months is that um, I based it around the uh, Mark Batterson book, Draw the Circle. Some of you may know about that book and have read it. It's a great book. 
Uh, I, I made it to where it was a 40-month instead of 40-day prayer challenge, and each, each month we would get together and talk about what that chapter held. Um, good stuff, it was good, and it was cathartic to me uh, to work, work still through that. So, yeah, that was one thing. That's been quite a while ago. Uh, still, the season has had its challenges, but uh, I'm much better now. And then just last week, um, I come to the uh, Thursday morning prayer group with the men. Sometimes. I don't always get up that early. Sorry to confess to you, Pastor. Um, but uh, last week, I was reading one of the chapters, page 25. Let me read it to you real quick. Uh, on page 25, they, they quote Tim Keller, a minister in New York City. He goes so far as to suggest that we are the first culture in history where men define themselves solely by performing and achieving in the workplace. That got me. And then this one really got me. It is the way you become somebody and feel good about your life. I said to excuse me. I said to myself, yeah, that was me. That's me written all over it. And what I forgot to mention in first service is this, which is pretty key, is um, about a day later, I'm, you know, have circled that, thinking about it a little bit. About a day later, Pastor Mark calls me up and says, hey, would you speak at church about your situation? Divine intervention, divine intention. That's what I think. Um, I did, like I said, I do have my notes and there is something I do want to read from my notes because I want to get it right. If there's, if there's one moment that I'm, <laughs> and I'm going out on a limb to say I'm profound, <laughs> Uh, but I would like to read it to you, what I wrote down. So Pastor Mark asked me how trusting God and working with the Holy Spirit has been coming along. And, and this, is what, this is what I felt just a couple days ago, actually, yeah. I think it was yesterday I wrote it. <laughs> yesterday I wrote it out because I was going to wing it without any notes, but I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday, so I didn't trust myself to not have the blank stare and lose my train of thought. I wish I could tell you that the Holy Spirit filled me with overwhelming warm and fuzzy, and I have completely forgiven the administrators. That would be untrue. What I have experienced regularly is that when my mind wanders down the, the wrong path, the Spirit reminds me that I'm first and foremost a child of God. Get yourself together, Carrie. 
And that trusting God is a process. Don't get me wrong. I trust the Almighty all of the time. But do my actions and thoughts always reflect that? Thus, the work in progress. I think I'll wrap it up with that. You're all, if you're all right with that, I'm going to wrap it good. up with that. <laughs> One of the things that Gary is talking about here that I think is really important is where each of us finds our identity. And that sometimes trusting in God is linked to our identity and who we are in Christ and who we're letting be the most important in our life. And um, Carrie's working through that, and I think we're all in process in that too. So um, would you mind just praying for us for, for a moment and just closing us in prayer? And if that's you, you're just you're working through that too. You're, you're trying to not define your life based on what our culture says. You're trying to define your life based on what God's word says. Would you just grab a hold of this prayer from Carrie? Heavenly Father, um, we call upon you to remind us that we are your children. And it's not that what we do, where we work, how we treat people, it's all important. But the most important thing is you, Father. The most important thing is that when we have challenges in life, we will lean into you. And we will call on your Holy Spirit to remind us of the love you have for us as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs> That's good. Can we give Gary a hand? Thank you. All right, you can grab your Bible or turn your Bible on to Daniel 3. I'm going to get to a story in Daniel 3 here in just a moment. But I want to thank Kerry for coming and sharing, and that was, that was good. I know that he was going through a tough time for a while, and it was fun to just watch him trust in the Lord in his own ways. And you can see that in his story that... It's, it's still a process, and I know it is for me, and I, I'm assuming it is for you too, that there are moments in our lives when we have to trust God at a deeper level than we do at other times. And while we all say, yeah, I, I mean, I trust in the Lord, that's just, that's just true. There, there are moments where something happens like what happened to Carrie or to someone else where that trust in the Lord, we, we begin to discover, is this, does this go deep? How far down do my roots go in God? And uh, that's why we're asking this question, do I trust God? Because what it really is about is how deep my roots are in my relationship with the Lord. Because am I going to trust him through some of those really deep things? It was good to have Kerry come and just share his heart. Um, it's good to see that, that, that anybody can do that, right? Because I just want you to know Kerry can do it, and you're next. So I'll be calling one of you next week. It'll be your turn. And uh, <laughs> not really. You all looked really scared at me for just a minute, like, no! Um, but we do have some other people that are going to share, and I'm really excited about that. 
Okay, so I'd like to share a story of trust with you this morning. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. In fact, um, two or three of my, my favorite stories are in the book of Daniel. And um, I think what I love about them are they are really good stories of trust. And they're really good stories of how people just really made a, a pretty powerful commitment to the Lord in their lives. And so um, they're, they're really great stories about trust. And I want to look at this one in Daniel chapter 3, which is kind of, it's not the middle of the book, but it's kind of the middle of the scenario that you would say Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are in. So let me kind of set the table for this, set the context, and then we'll jump into some specifics about what God's word says. So let me remind us a, a little bit about the history of how we get to chapter three. So first of all, in 586 BC, before Christ, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, not on his own accord, but because God has asked him to come to Jerusalem, he has come and destroyed Jerusalem. Now he destroyed all of Israel, all of Judah, and as he leaves, he takes all of the good stuff with him. So he takes all the gold, all the silver, all the bronze, all the precious metals, and he takes all of the good people, young people, middle-aged, older, he takes all of them with him that he thinks can help him in Babylon be successful as a king and as a leader. So he takes all their good stuff and he takes all the good people and he leaves. And he just leaves everybody else, the remnant, just to kind of suffer on their own. Now for the boys that end up taken to Babylon are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now you might know these three boys as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if your kids are little and you watch VeggieTales, they're what? Rack, Shack, and Benny. That's right. And so um, these three guys, I like to call them by their Hebrew names because Daniel gets to use his Hebrew name through the book. And um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get to use their Babylonian names, but I switch back and forth. You'll see me switch back and forth. I just don't want to leave their original names out. Now, several momentous stories from their life in Babylon are given to us in the Old Testament book of, of Daniel. And almost every moment that you see throughout the book, you will notice that those moments required great trust. I mean, deep, deep trust by these men. What we also know, and just history has told us, and I just wanna put this on the table as well because it helps us understand the situation that we're going to see is that during this time, life was very different around the world. During this time, most cultures, villages, people groups, and nations were very religious. In fact, almost everyone served a God of some kind. And so most cultures believed that that God was a minor part of their everyday life, but a huge part of momentous and big parts of their life. And they would, they would call upon their God and they would refer to their God when they got in situations where they needed them. And going to battle was certainly one of those situations. So during this time, what normally would happen is if one tribe or one nation was going to battle against another, each of them would pray to their gods and then they would fight. 
And whoever won the fight, basically what everyone assumed at the world at that time was that our God is better than your God because he helped us win the fight. And it didn't matter that both of them were false gods and weren't gods at all. <laughs> they weren't empowering them at all. That didn't matter. That's just the way people thought. It's the way they think. And it was part of the ingrained part of culture. So it was a basic assumption that the nation that won the battle had a more powerful God. Unfortunately, the people of God believed this in, at times too. And there were times where the people of God would fall away from believing God's word. They'd fall away from believing the living God and serving the living God. And as a result, they would get caught up in worshiping the false gods from the people around them. And when they did that, God would obviously be, you know, dissatisfied with that and hurt because they wouldn't want relationship with him. But many times those false gods would take them into horrible actions where they would destroy the family Many of the false gods around the nations actually believed in child sacrifice. So there were times where the Egyptian people would actually throw their babies into the fire. I mean, these were the things that the false gods would ask of them and that those nations believed they needed to do to serve those false gods. And so there were these moments where uh, God was, would, would send a prophet or a king to try to get them back on track and and. Where we're at in Daniel chapter three, the nation of Israel has really spent a couple hundred years just completely ignoring the prophets, completely ignoring God's word, and have totally fallen into a really, really bad place. And so God sends the Babylonians in to conquer them so that they might see that God is real. Now, I'd like us to look at the story in the life of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah because this moment in their life is important. It reveals that these three boys are really becoming men of faith. They're becoming what I would like to say, like boys to men. Nobody got it. We're moving on. If you're as old as I am, you should have got that joke and it should have been funny. I thought I was going to hear you laugh and you didn't. So we're just going to go on. It wasn't funny. That's why. See? But see, you're not of my generation, so. My mom is the one who said that. Uh, oh, mom, oh. Gosh, show. Okay, here we go. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob was their God. And these young men left Jerusalem probably around the age, somewhere between maybe like 12 and 15. So before that, you'll remember a couple, if you go back a couple messages of mine, they would have had some extensive training in the Old Testament by the time they were 12. So they would have probably gone through that extensive training and, and depending on the family that they were in, and we're guessing that they were in a fairly strong biblical and God-fearing family based on how their lives turned out. Um, these three men began to trust in God even though they're taken off to Babylon as slaves. So they knew the God of their ancestors. But their story is going to reveal several things to us. Their story is going to reveal some really good lessons about how you and I can trust God today, just like they did in their day. 
Because it's interesting, there's not a whole lot different in our lives today than when it was happening in their life. And the way that they were following God and trusting in God and living for him and following him is not a whole lot different than the way you and I are today. And so I want us to open our hearts to the word this morning and see what's taking place and see how you and I can learn how to trust God in the middle of it. Now, let me give us a a little bit of background into chapter three, because I'm going to kind of jump in right in the middle. At the time of this story, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have been appointed as leaders in the nation of Babylon. They, they went through probably about four or five years of extensive training uh, in the Babylonian ways. They probably learned the language and they learned about leadership skills and some things like that. And now they have been appointed as leaders in Babylon, which means they might be um, a governor of a city or something like that. But the three of them, all three of them are now leaders in the country. Now here's what's interesting. Normally, at this time, the only way you would get to be a leader is because you had one very, very strong key trait, and that was that you were trustworthy. Trustworthiness would have been huge to Nebuchadnezzar because he wants to know that if he says something, you're going to follow through on it. He also wants to know something even more important, that when he asks you to ask for taxes from the people in your city, that you're not skimming off the top. And because... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are men of integrity. They're doing the right thing. And so they're, they're elevated in their leadership. Well, right before chapter three and right in the beginning of chapter three, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has set up and built a 90 foot tall gold statue. That's really tall, really tall. So there's this giant gold statue out in the plain of Dura. And Nebuchadnezzar invites all of his friends and all of the leaders and a bunch of the people from the nation of Babylon to come out to the plain of Dura where this giant statue is. And they're gonna basically have a giant party worshiping his new gold statue to the God of Babylon. And at this party, Nebuchadnezzar has asked one of his favorite bands to be there. So they're gonna play music. And when the music is played, everybody is supposed to bow down and worship this God. Now, quick side note, just so you know, even the music today asks us to worship something because worship and music are always connected. So whatever kind of music you're listening to, it's asking you to worship something or someone. That's true all throughout scripture. We see that laced all over the place. Wherever there's music, there's worship. And the same is true in our lives. So Nebuchadnezzar has this great band. He has all the people. He's got the giant gold statue that he just made that he's really proud of. And they start playing music and everybody is supposed to bow down to this statue or be thrown in a giant fiery furnace if they don't. By the way, that's how you find out if somebody's heart is truly, truly wants to worship a God is you uh, require them to be thrown in a furnace if they don't. So the Babylonian leaders, um, those that are living in Babylon and are 
historic Babylonian leaders, they notice that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are not bowing down. And so they rat them out. And they go before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're, they're not bowing down to your giant gold statue. And they're, they're way in the back, back there. You might not even see them not bowing down, but they're, they're back there and they're choosing not to bow down. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them up and he basically gives them one last chance to bow down to the golden statue or be thrown in this fiery furnace. And this is where you and I pick up the story. Verse 12, look at it with me. Verse 12 says this, but there were some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. Verse 19, jump down there. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Well, let's see what we can learn about trusting God from these three guys right here. The first lesson that I believe we can learn is that trusting God means we don't serve or worship the gods of this world. The first thing trusting God means is I'm, I'm no longer trusting the gods of this world or the gods I've even made in my own life. I'm trusting God Almighty. My life is changing. My life's in process, but it's changing. I'm not trusting the world. I'm not trusting culture. I'm not trusting the gods of our culture. I'm trusting the almighty God, the God of the Bible, the God who I know and love and serve. Now, why is this important? Let me tell you why. Because every single one of us will worship. Listen, God created humankind to worship. It's deep in our soul. It might be the deepest thing in our soul, but our soul, our heart, our mind, our spirit wants to connect with someone or something. There's an innate desire in every single one of us. And what happens is you and I will worship. There's no doubt about it. Every single one of us on this planet is going to worship someone or something. The question is, what will that be? What are you going to worship? You're going to worship the God of the Bible, the God that created you, the God that loves you, the God that left heaven and died on a cross for you. You're going to worship the God of the Bible or you're going to worship what the culture wants you to worship or you're going to worship what you want to worship. Now in America, we're really good at worshiping ourselves. In Babylon, they had multiple gods. In America, we have multiple gods. Now, our gods aren't statues and planes. They're not figurines carved out and put on mantles above our fireplaces. Our gods are different. In fact, our gods are deeper. They're more ingrained in our heads and in our brains and in our thinking because our gods are the philosophies of men. 
The things that we worship in the United States are the philosophies of men. They are the ideas and the lifestyles that we are supposed to affirm or live in. They are material possessions that we are encouraged to desire. Our gods are social cliques that want us to participate in their subculture and, and worship that subculture that we've ingrained in. And if we don't follow or consume these false gods at the rate that the culture wants us to, then we're shunned or canceled or destroyed publicly or economically. That's what happens when you and I don't follow the false gods of the American culture. They're real. They're there, aren't you? As you go to the workplace, you can see them where you work, can't you? You can see them in people's lives. You, we can see them in our own on occasion. I have the false god of a new fishing boat. I don't know if you knew that or not. But it's real and valid in my life. Now the other leaders, the tattletales, this is what they say about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to Nebuchadnezzar. This is their statement about them. They said, they refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. I don't know of a better statement that someone could say about us as a Christian than that one. We won't serve your gods. We won't serve your culture. We won't serve your subculture. We won't serve your pet project. We serve the God of the Bible and him alone. See, in other words, what they were saying was they're not doing what everyone else is doing. They're not bowing like you want them to bow. They're choosing to live different than us. We should hold them accountable for that. Now, I want you to notice Nebuchadnezzar's response. In verse 13, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage. In verse 19, it says, Nebuchadnezzar's face became distorted with rage. Not, not in a mean way, but the person that's closest to you, do you know their mean face? Yeah, you know the one, the, 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 their eyebrows do something, their nose wrinkles, maybe their mouth does something. The, the, mean, the mean emoji face, like I have one, do you have one? I'm sure you do. This is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He gets his mean face on. He's angry. He's upset. And the same thing is happening today. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed in our world today that our culture and our world is getting really upset and they're getting a mad emoji face on social media when we don't buy into their lifestyles and we don't buy into their pet projects? Have you noticed that? That's what's happening today. And right in the middle of that, you and I have to choose to trust God. We have to choose to say we're not going to worship the gods of our culture. We must continue to love. We must continue to live a life of grace and truth. We must, even though they're unjustly flying off the handle in rage with their mad face, we must choose to love. And we must live a life that is full of the Spirit and sold out for Jesus so the world can see that Jesus is real and Jesus can solve the world's problems if we let him. 
The second lesson we can learn from Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah is that we can trust God even when we don't know the outcome of our circumstances. Now, this is huge. We can trust God even when we don't know the outcome of our circumstances. How many of you are like me? There, are, there comes moments in my life where God asks me to trust him and I say this back to him. Well, if you just tell me what, what's gonna happen in the future, then I'll trust you. How many of you do that just like I do, right? We want to know the outcome before God does anything and then we say, we'll trust you. That's not trust. That's not trust at all. And so trust goes deep into the, uh, the soul of our life the deepest parts of our hearts and our soul because we don't know what's gonna happen and we trust God. That's trust. Now, let me, let me show you how that, that worked with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 16. In verse 16, it says this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. How many of you believe God's able to save you through all your stuff, right? That's what they said. We have faith in God. He can save us from whatever you want to throw at us. We all believe that. That's like a, a baseline of our faith and our trust in God. He will rescue us from your power, O majesty. But verse 18, they say this, but even if he doesn't, we want to make something clear to you your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now notice what they said. Here's what they said. If God rescues us, great. If God doesn't rescue us, great. We don't care because the outcome is not the basis of our relationship. Knowing the outcome isn't gonna change whether we trust God or not. If we knew that God was going to rescue us, then we would, we're, we're all in. We're super confident. But you can tell they don't know that God's going to rescue them. They're assuming that they're either going to die in the furnace or God's going to rescue them. And you and I have to do the same. Lord, it really stinks that my child has cancer. But whether you heal them or not, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in you because you are my God. Now, here's what's interesting. The future was uncertain. They didn't know what was going to happen. And the future in our lives is often uncertain as well. But our trust needs to be based on who God is, not on what we want God to do for us. Now, let me make this even more important and drive this home. Because if we only trust God when he does what we want him to, then we're actually saying some pretty powerful things that don't work very well in a relationship with him. When you and I say, I'll only trust God when he does what I want him to or when he answers my prayer right now, then what we're really saying is God needs to submit to me. I don't submit to God. God submits to me. When I pray, God should answer me right now. I'm going to pray a prayer in that microphone, and by the time I get to that window, God needs to have my prayer answered. 
And if he doesn't, then he's not submitting to me. That's not how it works. That's not trust in God. That's not how a relationship with God works. We submit to him. He doesn't submit to us. Secondly, what we're really saying is I'm wiser than God. I'm smarter than God. I know what should happen here. I know all of the ramifications of this scenario. I know what's happening in the future. And so because I'm so much wiser than God is, he should do exactly what I want him to do. When we only trust in God when he does what we want him to, then what we're also saying is, God, there's, there's actually conditions on my relationship with you. I'm placing conditions on you. Now, I don't want you to place conditions on me because I still want you to unconditionally love me and I want you to unconditionally die for me, but I want to be able to put conditions on you. And the condition is this. If you don't answer my prayer the way I ask it, when I ask it, and how quickly I want you to answer it, well, then I'm not going to trust you anymore. That's what we're really saying when we say we only will trust him when he does what we say. And then lastly, if we say we're only going to trust God when he does what we want him to, then the hard reality is this. Jesus is not really Lord of my life. He's not really Lord of my life. I haven't given him everything. I haven't said, Jesus, you have all of me. Just like you gave me all of yourself, I give you all of me. The way we really discover whether he has all of us or not, the way we discover if he's really Lord is in the tough times. When we say like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did, we don't care what you do to us. You can kill us. You can torture us. You can do whatever difficult thing you can possibly think of, Nebuchadnezzar. Nothing. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to hear from us. We will never serve you. That's what trust is. You've heard me say this before, but it's very true. God is not our sugar daddy. That's not who he is. He's God. He's not someone we just... He's not a McDonald's drive through window. He's not our sugar daddy. He's the creator of the world. He's the creator of the universe. He's created billions of galaxies. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, giver of life, sustainer of all things, the beginning and the end, the healer of nations, the author of our faith, the sacrifice for mankind, the lover of our soul, the Lord of heaven, the ultimate authority in the universe, the forgiver of our brokenness. He is the savior, the healer, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit and our soon coming king. Who are we to say, you must do what I want you to? That's not trust. That's not trust. See, we trust God no matter what the circumstances because he is God. The third lesson that we learn is that trusting means we understand that God is in the fire with us. There's something so great about this story. And the thing that is so great about this story is that God meets them right in the middle of their fire. In verse 24, it says this, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been thrown in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar says this in verse 24. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in amazement and exclaims to his advisors, 
didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come here. Now here's what's interesting. In verse 42, Nebuchadnezzar had the furnace heated up even hotter because he had his emoji angry face on. And he had it heated up so hot that the men who threw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the fire, they died. So get the picture here. Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah are getting thrown into the fire. The guys who throw them in the fire are now dead. So the assumption is what? They should be dead that quick too. But Nebuchadnezzar now sees them walking around in the fire. It's kind of high-fiving, hey, fist pumping. Pretty sweet here, huh? Hey, what's up, Jesus? He sees four men walking around, and what Nebuchadnezzar says is the fourth one looks like a god. NIV says he looks like the son of God. This New Testament, Old Testament word is used in several different ways. It's used to mean son or God or people or grandchildren or mankind. Maybe the best translation of it here is son of God. But regardless of the best translation, what we see here is God sends Jesus or an angel to be in the fire with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So I have a question for you. Anybody in the room have a fire right now that you need God to meet you in the middle of? Anybody? There's two takeaways that I get from this moment in the story that I just love. Two things. The first is this. Whenever you and I get in trouble, God sees you. He sees us. In our deepest, darkest, most challenging times of our life, God sees us. He sees you in your moment right now. If you're going through a tough time, if you're having a rough week, a rough month, a rough year, God sees you. He sees where you're at. He sees your pain. He sees your heartache. He sees your struggle. He sees you right where you are at. David said it like this in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. See, the second thing that we can see is God is always with us in the middle of our fire. I love the fact that Hananiah, Hamisha, and Azariah are met right in the middle of their deepest, darkest, most challenging moment of their life, and either an angel or Jesus himself is right there with them, rescuing them, protecting them, honoring them, being there with them right in the middle of their situation. Now that brings up a question that I have for us, and it's this. Have you let God in? Have you let God in to your tough moment right now? I ask that because that's exactly what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did. They invited God into this moment. 
Because what they say to Nebuchadnezzar is this, the God whom we serve is able to save us. In other words, the God that we serve, he's the living God. This, this thing over here, this giant gold statue, it's nothing but a statue. The God we know, the God we serve is actually alive. And he's capable and able to meet us right in this moment where we're at. This God you serve, he's nothing. He can't meet you anywhere. He can't show up anywhere. He can't rescue you from anything. Our God can. And so my question to you this morning is, have you invited God in? Have you let him into the moment that is your struggle, to your pain, to your heartache, to your difficulty? Have you let him in? See, they were inviting God into their trouble. And in the middle of that moment of inviting God in, God moved. God changed something. And God came alive. See, whatever you're in the middle of today, invite God in so that he can answer your prayer and so that he can be real to you right now. Now, lastly, when we trust God through really tough circumstances, it helps those watching to believe in God. There's always someone watching you. If, if they know that you're a Christian, there's always somebody watching you. And, they, and, and when we get into those difficult times in life, their ears, their spiritual ears, especially perk up because they want to know, is God real? Is this person just going to fall apart? Or is God real? Is God really going to carry them through this moment? Or is everything that they've said that they believe just going to fall flat on its face? They're watching. In verse 28, it says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Now here we also notice that Nebuchadnezzar makes what looks like somewhat of a confession of God but he still needs to work on some of his theology. Have you noticed? Because mostly his theology goes something like this. If you don't worship the God I tell you to worship, I will tear you apart from limb to limb. Like that's not really good theology, but you notice that he, maybe Nebuchadnezzar is just a really violent guy. Like he likes really, he likes really violent rated R movies. He's like, those are my favorite. You know, I want to shoot them up. Give me a shoot them up where somebody's ripping people limb from limb and just shooting everybody. That's Nebuchadnezzar. So, so if you won't serve God, then let's forget the golden statue now, but let's tear you limb from limb. <laughs> Maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to help him later with some of his theology. But here's what we see. He makes a confession to God. He makes a confession about who God is, and he sees the, 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 God, that, the God of the Bible that 
Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah live for is the one and true, only living God. And he makes that declaration in front of all of his friends, in front of all of his neighbors, in front of all of his leaders. He makes this declaration. See, there's always someone watching us as followers of Jesus. Now, hear me, because I want you to hear my heart. That is not a call to be perfect. I'm not asking you to live a perfect life. I'm not, I'm not asking you to never show anyone that you are hurting or struggling. In fact, just the opposite. What, what we need to do as followers of Christ is be real, be authentic, show our struggle, show our pain, and at the same time say, but I'm trusting God in the middle of this. I'm following him in the middle of this. Every single day, I wake up in the morning and I give him my pain. And every single day, he takes it. Unfortunately, I pick it up again sometime in the afternoon and then I have to give it back to him again the next morning. But here's what I want you to know. In the middle of my struggle, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of this difficult circumstance and situation I'm in, I've invited God to be here with me. And he said, yes, he's come to my crappy party and he's right here with me and he's walking every single step, every single moment of the day with me. See, when we show our struggles and we show our trust in God, it doesn't show weakness. It shows authenticity. It shows that a real relationship is happening in our life with God Almighty. So let me close with this. We've been asking ourselves this big question, do I trust God? We're asking it for a reason. We've been asking this big question because life isn't always easy, even though in the easy times we're trusting him too, but life is difficult sometimes. And what do we discover in those difficult times? We discover how to trust God the most. It's in those moments where we say like Jesus did, Lord, I'll go to the cross for you. But if there's any way that we could maybe do it different, that'd be great, but I want you to know I'm all in. I trust you. Which brings us to a question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to choose to start trusting God? You're going to trust yourself? Are you going to trust the gods of our culture? Those are our choices. God, ourselves, or the gods of our culture. Those are the things that are asking us to trust them. And the stories that we've been looking at in God's word, they're there to help us to see that trusting God is always the best route. It's always the best thing. And it always brings us the most healing and everything that we need this side of heaven. That's what God gives us in the middle of our moments. Would you stand with me? And would you just close your eyes with me for a moment? And I just want us to take a moment with the Holy Spirit and just respond to what the Lord has said this morning.